Hello, 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 and welcome to Canadian Made. I'm Olivia, and on this podcast, we go behind the scenes of the Canadian entertainment industry to learn more about the unsung heroes behind the scenes who make this incredible content come to life. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Lara Jean Korostecki, who is an actor and fellow podcaster. You might know her from Hannibal, The Expanse, X Company, Reacher, Designated Survivor, or more recently, Nightmare Alley, just to name a few of the many wonderful things she's been a part of. She also hosts a wonderful podcast called Women on Screen Out Loud, and we talk all about the making of that and the inspiration behind it in this episode, so stay tuned. Of course, in this episode, we get some behind-the-scenes scoop of what it is like to be an actor, but for me, what made this conversation so special was how candid Lara Jean was with her own experience working as an actor and the highs and the lows that come along with it. We talk about how to find joy in auditioning. We talk about how to find quiet and center yourself on set. And I think that the advice that she gives is obviously extremely applicable if you're an actor or if you're someone who works on set in high pressure situations. I also found that it was so useful and transferable to my own life and so much of it resonated with me and gave me tools for how to adjust my own mentality in situations where I maybe feel nervous or lacking focus so of course if you are an actor this episode is for you but if you are not rest assured you will get so much out of this process and her unique insight into the industry so without further ado i have absolutely no doubt that you are going to completely fall in love with lara jean and find her as charming and cool and articulate as i did so Let's get into it. I read that you discovered your love of acting at age eight after Mm -hmm. watching Les Mis. Mm -hmm. But of course, most of your career hasn't been musical related since your early days at Stratford, I saw. So I'm curious if, you know, if you still sing, if we can expect a singing acting role in your your (laughs) near future. Oh, I like that. That's great. Yes and no. Uh, Yes, I can still hold a tune. No, I don't sing like I used to. But I will say at the beginning of pandemic, one of the ways that I alleviated stress was by I was in my condo, you know, box in the sky near High Park by myself at the beginning of pandemic. And so to alleviate stress, I would put on musical theater karaoke on my TV and sing at the top of my lungs. And no neighbor ever complained. So I think I'm still okay. That's and I would record them on occasion. So there's a few recordings of this that I would send to my parents because my parents used to love hearing me sing and I don't really sing anymore. So I would send them during early days of pandemic because they're of course locked in their own place. These videos of me singing musical theater songs that I used to sing when I was younger. So yes, I used to be a musical theater junkie. You are correct. That's why I wanted to be an actor. I had a really cool happenstance 
um, serendipitous thing in my early career where my first job was a musical. So Three Penny Opera at Stratford was my first job. And I was in the chorus and I had just come from high school where I was playing Polly Peachum, the lead in Three Penny Opera because for some reason, our wonderful, amazing drama teacher in high school at Mayfield School for the Arts in Brampton determined that Three Penny Opera was a great high school musical. I don't know that that's true, uh, but I just played Polly Peachum. So when I started at Stratford, I was in the chorus of Three Penny. And in that, um, in that production, Susan Gilmore was playing uh, Jenny. I think her name's, yes, Jenny. And she played Fontaine in the production of Les Mis that I saw when I was eight. So the thing that made me want to be an actor, my very first professional job, she was in. Oh, wow. And like, that's such a full circle moment to happen on your first ever Yeah, it was really job. exciting. I got to bring to her a picture of me when I was eight years old, performing for my great grandfather who had been visiting, bless his soul. He's, he was, would have been like almost a hundred or something. And I did the entirety of Les Mis for him lip syncing. And so there's a picture of me at eight pretending to be Fontaine. And I got to bring it in for Susan and say, look, here's like, you really did inspire me. I made my poor great-grandfather sit through an entire protection. But that's also Mis. impressive to yes. be able to do that at eight years old. That's I knew extremely all the impressive. All the words. Yeah. So I, I would be completely remiss if I didn't ask you what your go-to musical theater karaoke song is then at the beginning of quarantine. What was your, what was your the, hit? So uh, Love Maybe This Time from Cabaret, which is kind of weird because that's actually, you know, the movie and not the stage, but love that. Um, she really is a musical theater nerd. <laughs> yeah. Um, Home from Beauty and the Beast. I was very melancholic at the beginning. And uh, last five years, also melancholic. And then my favorite is from The Baker's Wife, which is called uh, The Meadowlark. Meadowlark, yes. Oh, you know it, yeah, that Patty yes. LePone did years ago. So I love that one, because it's also like you can just belt out at the end. It's great. It's stunning, just stunning, yeah. Mm -hmm. I've, I should confess that I actually- Are you a musical theater nerd? I actually have a degree in musical theater, so- um, <laughs> Okay, great. I am the ultimate musical theater nerd. So um, you know it well. I know it well. I know it well. And I love it. And I love to find fellow um, musical theater nerds. So I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you embraced me for a moment on that. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking of Lara Jean at eight years old, watching Les Mis, and then you've subsequently become an actor. How do you think that your journey, that your expectations of what your life would be like as an actor has actually lived up to the reality? Oh my God. Big question. Yeah, that's a big question. I think all I wanted when I was little was to tell stories and to kind of lose myself in that storytelling aspect. And I mean, if you have a degree in musical theater, you know theater is so collaborative and theater is so much about serving the story. And I will say that in my, oh my God, 20 years at this job, 20 year career, uh, the beginning, starting in theater was more akin to what I thought things would be. So at the beginning, I was like, oh, yes, this is what I dreamed of when I was young and I'm doing these plays and I'm collaborating with everyone. 
And then there was a middle section. I switched to film and TV and then I started to feel that things were not as collaborative and there was a lack of agency and there's a lot of, you know, I, I didn't understand that different medium and that different form. And then in the last few years, you know, let's say five to eight years of my career, it's been really starting to cultivate and craft and find what makes that little spark of storytelling and that spark of collaborating with others uh, come to fruition and been really lucky to start to feel that for sure. So in that, back to your question, uh, no, it doesn't feel what I thought it would, but that spark of storytelling is still there and that's exciting to me. So I yeah. think Little Me is still, after a transitionary career of 20 years, Little Me is still satisfied with the work itself. Well, that's that must be really rewarding for you because I found when I was listening to you in interviews and reading interviews that you had done, that you had a, a genuine curiosity for everything that you're doing and a, and a genuine love of the craft. If I can be so bold as to say that that is something that, is so important to succeeding and having a long career as an actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think otherwise the, the industry will eat you up. You know, it's so fickle and so much of what you do is not based on your talent, like the jobs that you get. I mean, so much of what you book, you know, it's not based on your talent at all, but so much of it is... Um, what they need, how they're going to put things together, the puzzle pieces of, especially if it's like a family situation, you know, the puzzle pieces of a sister-brother relationship or dynamic, or, you know, in the not-as-fun places, it's, well, how much buzz do you have around you at this moment? And is that going to support, you know, they need to make some money depending on what the project is, and is that going to support? So there's, there's so much, or maybe the producer, you look like an ex-girlfriend. I mean, who knows? There's so many things that you're like, or maybe you, and that's a good thing. And then you book the job because of that. Like, I don't want to just go negative. Sometimes those are positives and these things out of our control make us book the job. But all you have control over is you. All I have control over is what I bring to the table, what I bring to every take, what I, as my actor animal, am able, able to do for whatever projects are, are put in front of me in terms of auditions or offers. I think you have to have that love of discovery and intuitive curiosity about understanding the human condition in order to continue to want to do this. Because only 25% of the time do I love my job. The other 75, it's just like anybody with a day job where you're like, oh, yeah, I do. You know, maybe I'm kind of okay with it. And then 25% of the time, so 50%, you're okay with it. And 25% of the time, it's awful. <laughs> but that 25 where it's so amazing, you've got to hold on to that. And that 25%, I'm curious if that has anything to do with the actual being on set and then the 75% being the auditioning part, or do you actually mean the day-to-day of being an actor? I mean the, I mean the auditioning and the on-set stuff. I mean the chance where you get to be curious and the chance where you get to collaborate. And that even on set is only 25% of the time, right? The rest of the time you're sitting around and hurrying up and waiting. Where the Absolutely. second is, call, you know, the third is calling you in. 
And the second has you on the schedule coming in three hours before you need to, because the producers will freak out if they can't have you there that early. And then you have to sit. And so you learn after time to bring your laptop with you because you're sitting in your room and you're trying to hopefully do other things like a podcast, like writing, like whatever it is that keeps you going. But that 25 happens in an audition, happens if you, I have uh, actor friends that I jam with once a week. So that's a 25%. And then that happens on the day when you're actually in front of that camera and able to collaborate with people. But set, any actor will tell you is... 75% of it is waiting. Absolutely. It's kind of encouraging to hear, you know, you have such a glamorous job that there is, you know, there's no perfect job. There's no such thing as walking into anything and just loving it. And sometimes there's the 25% is complaining around the water cooler too. Like sometimes that's a fun part also. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) I actually stopped going to lunches a while ago because I found that on set when I didn't have a job to do and all that waiting time that if I would sit at lunch and talk to people and try to do that 25% water cooler thing, it would drive my brain insane. I would start to talk and say things that I would think about later, like all of those social anxieties that you have from high school would take over. And it was strictly because my brain, my creative brain was stagnant from waiting around that interaction, being able to talk to people in that lunch period was so exciting to me. Uh, And then I stopped doing that. And instead, I take lunchtime to nap, to meditate, to do reading or or take a meeting or whatever it is. And then I do the talking with people and trying to collaborate and get interested and ask people about their day or their families or whatever in between setups when you can kind of have that casual conversation that's a bit nicer and less intensely focused for me. Yeah. Lunches were so intense. Yeah, but it's good advice, I think, to everybody in different aspects of, you know, the production, because I think sometimes you feel such an obligation to be, or you know, be on or be with the crew. And sometimes you have to take that space for yourself to remember, okay, I have a job to do. What's going to put me in the best situation to do my job? Well, it's understanding. I think a surprising number of actors are actually more introverted than extroverted, just in the strict sense of we get energy from being alone rather than from other people. So the actual um, from other people is pulls at our, you know, pulls my energy, it depletes me instead of if I take that time and take care of myself, then when I'm on set, I have more to give. And that's for me what I found being very protective of that hour lunch break, that it is a time for me to be still and silent and then be able to be refreshed and go back onto set and collaborate in a more exciting way instead of feeling so depleted halfway through the day. It's a 12-hour day. It's you got a lot to do. If I can go back a little bit to the beginning of your journey, what do you think is the most important element of succeeding as an actor? And you you can cheat and pick more than one if you want. Talent, training, or circumstance? Oh, Oh, Olivia, that's an impossible one to answer. You need talent and you need to work at it. So, you know, I I coach a lot as well. And you have various people come through the the coaching realm, uh, coming to me for self-tapes or just career kind of stuff and, and classes as well. And they're is something that you witness when you see so many young performers that talent is something. 
there is an innate talent and innate curiosity that comes with being an artist that you start to see, recognize in people, a drive that they really want to understand and learn how to flow within their body, within their emotions, allowing things to pass through them, allowing the text to support them, et cetera. So there is that, that I, I think you just are born with, but it's not that large a part because just like, you know, people talk about singing being a, a voice that you were just born with. Well, no, you can teach yourself how to sing. You can teach yourself, you can support yourself. You can, you can support yourself with breath. You can learn how the diaphragm, you know, how everything works to be able to have a fuller sound or a bigger range or whatever it is, acting is the same. So yes, someone who is tone deaf will never be a singer. Someone who is emotion deaf is maybe what you say, will probably not be a long-term actor. Now where I will put long-term is because there is circumstance. There is circumstance where people who maybe don't have that innate um, artistic spirit, curiosity, collaboration, whatever you wanna call it, um, that spark, have some other circumstance that means that they are perfect for said role and then they are amazing at said role and then perhaps they do it for you know five ten years and then they move on to something else and that's that's also valid and lovely and everything and then there's the innate but the innate is not enough so I do believe that it is essential however you do it to continue your training I didn't go to theater school um, I'm really happy I didn't. Uh, a bit of a lie because I did do my master's in classical acting in England, but I challenged my BA with professional experience. That master's was still only a year and it was, you know, half and half where you're still writing a dissertation, you're doing a research project. So the performative side was in tandem, but it wasn't the only thing. And for me, that kind of weird path that I was on where more often than not, I was learning on the job or learning through circumstance was, I think, integral to my career. But again, that's just my path. And the through line of that for me was wanting consistently to learn and to grow in whatever aspect I could. Hence um, what I mentioned earlier, this jam that I do once a week with actor friends so we don't go to a formal class, some of us do, uh, but we get together once a week and we play and we learn how to fail and learn how to continue to um, find new range to our work. I do my worst acting in the Actors Jam. When I did my master's, I did my worst acting. It was a year that I gave to myself to be able to be bad because I had, at that point I had done four years of Stratford and I had been so, you know, 17 to 21. I was so young trying to be good. I just wanted to be the best possible because I was with the top, you know, theater actors in Canada. And I couldn't. I could only be what I was. And I didn't have that room to kind of mess up. And so when I went to England, I gave myself permission to be a bad Shakespearean actor. And I was. And it was glorious. And that's what we do once a week in this jam that I do with my peers is Let's be bad. Let's like, it's fail club, we nickname it. Let's just play and see what happens in order to grow. So roundabout long answer to say innate talent is a portion of it, circumstance is a portion of it. So maybe my answer as I've come to is I think that curiosity and continuing to foster your growth is the most important. 
Yeah. I think that so often our egos get in the way of ourselves. Even when you're in a so-called safe space, sometimes it's really hard to kind of push yourself off the cliff and let yourself do something unexpected, regardless of if, you know, if you're acting, if you're writing, if you're directing, if you're being a lawyer like me, I'm like failing (laughs) every day and you don't always feel like you have that space. So having that space is amazing. Oh, it's integral. I don't think my work would be what it is right now if I didn't have that um, net, that freedom net of failure. Yeah. Which which is so weird to think I've got a safety net of failure. It's a weird safety net, but I think it is. Allowing yourself to not have to be perfect. Yeah. It's It's a good reminder for us all, definitely. If I can ask you, if I can ask you about your experience in the Canadian industry, and this is a really big question, so I'll try to break it down for you to a little bit what I'm getting at. Um, I keep giving you these tough questions and you keep knocking them out of the park though. I got to tell you, you know, there's a lot of different facets to the Canadian industry right now. There's, you know, the pure Canadian content and there's the service providers and you have a lot of experience working with both types of production. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, as you've grown, grown up with the industry, how you've, how you've maybe noticed, and I'm, I'm going to, make a couple assumptions here and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. you know, the growing American presence within the Canadian market and how that's affected your career or not. And, and, and kind of how you feel like the the industry at large has changed since you, since you started uh, film and TV. It's an interesting question that I'm not sure I have a direct answer for you on. I can't put my finger on exactly why I don't either, but here's maybe what I can offer the American industry, the amount of filming that is done in Toronto, Montreal, a little bit in the East Coast, certainly a ton in Vancouver, it does bolster our work to a certain extent because there are more opportunities uh, just by virtue of them being here to be seen on a North American stage rather than a Canadian stage. What is more important than the other? I mean, that's up for debate. Depends what you personally, I think that's up to the individual of what you personally want your career to be. In terms of just looking at the industries, there is some truth still to the fact that it seems in order to be seen in a certain light by American producers, you need to live in the States even if you live in the States to be cast in projects that go in Canada, or my caveat would be you have amazing, which we have a few of them in Canada, some very uh, fantastic, extremely good at their jobs, casting directors who vouch for you, who fight for you, who believe in your work. Because otherwise the majority of the American work that comes up, the Canadians are filling the guest stars, sometimes the recurrings, Um, not often the series regulars, uh, unless you have that magic formula of the casting agents who really fight for you or the fact that you've made some sort of established presence in the U.S. So that's a complex, and that's the best reflection I can give on it. In terms of my personal experience, I mean, my resume and what I've done, and I'm really grateful to have worked on the amazing I'm so proud of X company for example the amazing Canadian work and some great Canadian indies and I'm really proud of the American work I've done too and I'm just grateful for that whole experience 
I don't know that it's shifted since I started doing film and TV in, in approximately 2008. I think it's kind of the same. Uh, I'm really grateful to some casting agents who fought for me when it came to American producers and said, no, she should be, you should absolutely be considering her at the top of your list. Yeah, I, I'm surprised to hear your more introspective take about how, how you're getting roles and, and how, you know, the whole, the inner workings of the process. Yeah, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm grateful for those who have fought for me and I'm grateful for what I've fought for. And it's been an interesting experience when I get cast out of LA and when I get cast in Toronto, um, the different perceptions that happen based on that. Uh, but grateful either way, it's, it's always interesting to me what comes through as a straight offer and what comes through as an audition. And I, I love auditioning, so I'm never opposed to auditioning. But it's fascinating. And, and I feel like why I said to you, I don't know if I can put my finger on that is because I don't think I have an answer. It shocks me every year where I go, oh, I thought I was here. Oh, oh no, I'm actually here. Or I thought I was here. And oh, no, I'm actually here. Oh, interesting. Like it, it's unpredictable is what I'll say. Yeah, absolutely. And you ha- and I have to pick up on this because you said you love auditioning mm-hmm. and that can't be true for every actor. So I'm, I'm, and I was actually in a previous podcast with, uh, with Christian Brune. Yeah. I love not, Christian. Yeah. He, um, he talks about how he dreads every audition still. And so, you know, what, what is it that you, that you like so much about it and, you know, what kind of like tip could you give people who hate it? to find a little bit more joy in the process? Well, everything's different now because we used to go in person Mm -hmm. and we don't anymore. And even like since the pandemic, I've screen tested a few times on Zoom and you go, okay, chemistry test was my favorite. Screen test is one thing, but when it's a chem, because it's just you with the reader, when it's a chemistry test, I remember being like, how can you tell right now with this Zoom lag? And it was really early pandemic too, what the chemistry is between us. But to an extent, because I've done so much on Zoom now, you can, sure. I just don't know that we could at the very beginning. So there's it's a twofold answer because uh, when it's in person, the best advice I have is it's your room and they want you to succeed. I was fortunate to be a casting reader years ago when I first started in film and TV and it was the most educational experience seeing the actors come in. And I'm sure you had this too, right? You see them come in and you see what they bring into the room. And sometimes you cringe and you're like, oh, just don't, you're fine, you're fine. And a lot of the times our um, insecurity undermines us and we forget that they just, they want us to do great because they've created, like the casting agents have created this list of 20 actors or 30 actors, depending on the role. And they want producers to be like, oh my God, we picked this one of the 20, but all of them were good. And we're going to hire that casting director. Like you doing well allows the casting director to keep getting hired. So knowing that they have your best interests at heart, they don't want you to fail. They want to do everything possible to help you to succeed because if you succeed, they look good. So remembering that it's your space in your room and you've been called in to help them look good for me is a bit freeing because you go, right, you're being entrusted with this experience. Um, And that's in the room. I also just like talking to people and I love being able to ask, you know, the director, if they have feedback for me, great, let me talk about, let's talk about this role for a second so we can get some ideas on what to do next. Then when it comes to Zoom stuff, that experience can be the same. You can still say hi and 
talk around. Um, but the self-tape experience, I started doing self-tapes five years before the pandemic and almost booked some stuff and then almost booked some big stuff off of first a, a self-tape before I was flown to LA and, and did all that stuff. That experience of being in that vacuum, I know a lot of people right now are like, but we don't have any feedback. You know, how do I know if I'm doing a good job or not? And all I can offer there is that's where coaches come in, but also that's where your peers come in. And coaches are iffy because, of course, a lot of actors who uh, want coaches can't necessarily afford coaches. So again, that's where I go build your community, create a situation where you are surrounding yourself with peers who help you get curious about your work so that you are able to play in the moment. And that's, that's what I love about self-tapes is I did the one this morning and we just played. I did five different takes and you do five different ways of doing it and I get to play for half an hour to an hour of my day before I go about doing all the other 75% of what, you know, the, of what the work is, of what this job is. But I just got to have fun. And that's what I love about auditioning is someone gives me a script and I get to look at it. And look, if I'm not connecting with the script also now, I mean, luckily I'm, I'm at the place where I feel able to do so, but I just don't do the audition. I only am doing auditioning, auditions that are exciting to me too at this point. And back when I wasn't doing that, when I was just like, yes, 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 yes. Before someone told me the most powerful thing we can do as an actor is say no, which is very true. Uh, when I was back to yes, 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 then it was like, how curious can I get about this character? Okay, it's not that interesting, but there's gotta be something that connects with who I am, what my energy is, what my spirit is. And at the end of the day, if I really don't like it, then um, my friends and I will say, then find what you will like about it. And then if they want to hire you for doing that wacky version of it, great. And if they don't want to hire you for doing that wacky version of it, you would have hated doing it anyway. So don't worry about it. That's such good advice, especially about everybody wanting you to succeed because it's true in so many areas of your life, you know, just in the day to day. People want you to do a good job because the better job that you do, it's like you said, it helps them look better. It, it, helps, it helps the bigger collective. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really good thing to keep in mind. One of my favorite questions to ask uh, everybody is what is your Hollywood moment? The moment where it was, it was really special and you thought, wow, I made it. It could be something, um, you know, kind of obvious or something a little bit understated that happened that was a huge kind of personal win for yourself. Oh, I mean, I haven't made it. So <laughs> Excuse so me, you were in an Oscar-nominated <laughs> film this year. That is true. But still, like, what are you talking about? I was, <laughs> that film, uh, that wonderful film, it's such a good film that I was in this year that you're referring to. When we shot it in 2020, I shot for two, two and a half months. It was long. I was oh, in wow. it for all of fall 2020. And I remember that moment because pandemic, you know, a lot. Pandemic has been a lot. And unfortunately, we have to say has been because it still exists. But pandemic has been a lot. And especially at the beginning, as we were all navigating, you know, this, this new, uh, whether it was loneliness or overstimulation, because everybody was around all the time or loneliness, because no one was around all the time. And I think a lot of questioning of 
um, who we are and getting simpler and um, really looking at the relationships with self, with work, with people, et cetera, was happening. And uh, there was that really still period where all of the work, especially as actors, didn't exist. And then suddenly August and September came around and then all the work picked up again. And we went back to work on Nightmare. And I remember I was in the midst of like that reckoning, that like personal reckoning of finding peace and had started a new form of somatic therapy, which I highly recommend to actors too. It's very good. Like it's just getting in touch with our bodies and everything. And I'm on this set with all these Oscar winners and I just was quiet. I just was sitting surrounded by this brilliant production design, which was, of course was nominated. And outside in Markham, in the fairgrounds of Markham in this 1930s with this huge pregnant belly. And I just sat between every take and I didn't bring my phone and I was just quiet. And for me, and then watched Tony Collette and watched Willem and, and watched Bradley doing their thing and Rooney. And, and for me, that silence is probably the closest to what you're asking for of just, it wasn't glamorous. There was nothing glamorous about it. It was just sitting and observing the best of the best and Guillermo, you know, being so creative, the best of the best doing what they do and then being able to play with that. That was lovely. But more than the play, I think the silence of observation, the silence of whatever that was in that moment in a pandemic where I would go to work every day and then go back to the hotel every night and, and know that I would just be immersed in this world that wasn't ours for a while. It was really neat. It was a great gift. Yeah, that's a really special moment, especially to have during a pandemic, to have um, such a career high, I'm sure, during such a kind of low point in the world. Yeah. It's a strange yeah, the paradox, like you say. was very yeah. strange. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I have to talk to you about your podcast because I think it's so special for those people listening who don't know it's called women on screen out loud, the podcast essays. And so I'm curious, you know, where this idea came from and and what made you want to get into podcasting and then specifically with this idea. Yeah, well, the 75% of our job not being as fulfilling means that you start to really look for ways that that 75% becomes um, meaningful. Uh, When I sat down with Jen Pogue and we talked about, I said, I have this idea for a podcast and I brought it to the um, Farah and Lauren and Kira at Women on Screen and said, hey, are are y'all interested in doing this? Um, I have this idea and and maybe you'd be into it. I just want a, a little more meaning in my downtime a little more uh, challenge, a little more education. I'm sure you've gone through this as well. Like Jen and I do everything from the only thing we don't do is mixing. And then of course the sound engineering, which the amazing people of Red Lab did in season one and then two and three has been at company three, formerly Deluxe. So they do that incredible work and their um, donation is so pivotal for us to be able to produce the quality of the podcast that we do, which I'm really proud of. Um, That honors, I think, the words of the women who've come forward and written these incredible personal essays for us, but came out of a lot of hiking in Los Angeles in which I would listen to Modern Love. 
So I don't know if you're familiar with Modern Love, but the New York Times podcast, uh, one of their many fantastic ones, and it is uh, essays on love that are written by normals. Normals, I say, that sounds terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's funny. (laughs) Um, Essays by normals, by the um, civilians is sometimes what we say, people who aren't devoting their lives to the insanity of this business. Um, Wonderful people with wonderful lives. And they talk about love and life. And then there's a very brief, not like we do, but a very brief like recap at the end of, of their story, essentially. And I loved listening to these. I loved hearing about people's experiences and their relationships. I'm obsessive about relationships and how people relate to each other. And I just thought that there was an opportunity, especially with women on screen, whose platform is to really um, showcase women in the film and TV industry in front and behind the camera, that we felt like there's not a lot of space where we hear from people behind the camera. We hear a lot from people like me or, or directors and writers who we want to hear from, and we did absolutely in the podcast. But I'm most proud of the fact that we went back and we talked to editors and we talked to colorists and we talked to VFX. And we really tried to get an understanding of what this process is and what that collaboration looks like and how many people are responsible and especially how many female identifying people are responsible and how that landscape is starting to change and how we're starting to get a lot more representation behind the camera with um, female identifying artists. And that's really inspiring. I came to Jen with this thing where I was like, let's make them write essays. And then we went, who is going to do that? Who's going to write an essay? That was my question because it's so intimidating. You'd be surprised. We have only had two no's from all the people we reached out to. And of course, we reached out to, there was a lot of scheduling stuff that couldn't happen, but we've done 32 episodes. And I'd say we probably reached out to 50, maybe 60 people and only two no's. Wow. And everybody else, it's like, if they were no, it's because it just didn't work into the schedule and when our recording was, and we were trying to do these condensed kind of um, seasons, for want of a better word, mostly because Jen and I have too much to do. Absolutely. So we only have so much time in our multifaceted careers of way too many hats to be able to devote more time to it. So we kind of take those few months a year to be able to give time to the podcast and honor these women who remarkably what we found amazing too is after we did the first 10 we were like okay well now people have heard it like there's a product that we can send them to and they can listen how many people are going to want to do it now and it it was actually less um less reserved responses like less like oh what would you like me to write about which we had a lot of season one like do you have prompt questions for me that would help me and we were always really happy to do that. And then suddenly season two and three. So the next 22 episodes were people, we didn't have to do prompts. Like the O'Horn came in talking about the Oka crisis and, and it was like, oh, okay, great. Yes, I want to hear about your experience with, you know, documentary film and, and the uh, need for indigenous communities to have ownership and tell their own stories. Oh my God, I did not expect us to talk about that. I thought we'd talk about Letter Kenny. And instead we're talking, so it was really inspiring to see what people brought in and then what formats they brought in because we also left it super loose. We just said personal essay. So Jean Yoon in season one was like, I'd love to be a part of it. 
I have this short story that I wrote. Would that be appropriate? And we're like, great. It's great. And it was kind of, you know, and, um, bit of an an allegory analogy, I'm going to use the wrong word, but whatever you want to say for her personal experiences in life, which we then could do in the interview. And this idea was important for me to have them determine what the conversation was going to be about. Because interview, long form interview processes, uh, or long form interview podcasts have their place, they're wonderful. I wanted something that was uh, bite-sized and Jen's big thing was like, they should be able to listen to it on their way to work back when we were commuted. Um, So something that is bite-sized in that 20 minute to half an hour, I think our longest is 40 minutes. And that the interview is not a rambling kind of thing, that it is very curated on what they have decided they want to share with the world. So we never did really questions outside of the writing. So it was always, what have you written about? And what what curiosity does that bring out in Jen and I? And then eventually Farah joined us in season three. What what did that make us want to talk about? What, What were we more curious about in what they've written? And I'm really proud of that aspect of it, that it's it's really specific then and it's really um personal to each. Yes, I can I completely agree. And it's it's interesting to hear you talk about your inspiration because it resonates so much with me and why I wanted to start this podcast because I think that especially, you know, there's a lot of information about there about, you know, the Hollywood machine, but there's not a lot of information on um, the Canadian industry, how the Canadian industry functions, you know, the people who work in the industry, how things get made. And so that was a big part of my ethos as well was to bring the stories from behind the camera and behind the scenes um, to the forefront, because Mm -hmm. that's something I'm really curious about. And I've been in the industry, you know, a good amount of time and I still there's so much I still don't know that I'm still so curious about finding out. So it's really interesting that, that we both felt like this yearning for a, yeah. a little bit more from behind the scenes. Yeah. And I remember we had talked about like, should we open it up to American talent and see if we can go beyond the Canadian landscape? And for us, it was really important not to. It was really important to champion our country and our work. And there's so much there's so much talent in Canada and so many people who have devoted their lives to storytelling and and really come so far Uh, and it was really yeah exciting to hear those stories and you'd get to walk away as I'm sure you experience inspired every single time where you're like oh my god I can't believe that person agreed to talk to me for a while and it's it's not just about like putting that check mark and going, oh, I got Annie Bradley or Michelle Morgan and they're great Canadian names. It was more like, oh, Annie talked to us for a while about her personal struggles and her personal life and what tenacity meant to her. Michelle talked about transitioning and imposter syndrome or Sharday Hardy talked to us about her imposter syndrome and what it is to be a kick-ass punk lady in sales and acquisition kind of like all of these really interesting stories that you just wouldn't hear otherwise that had such a personal open undertone to them. Oh, Lindy Greenwood this year talked about addiction and quitting acting, which I was like, I did not think I was going to make a podcast in, in talking about the Canadian industry in which someone talks about leaving the industry and what that journey was for her and why 
it was a toxic relationship and what it took for her. And she's extremely successful. Uh, and she might come back to it, which I loved too. After we talked to her, she was like, and then I did a Hallmark film. And I was like, but that's great because we have permission to be whatever we're going to be. And if that means leaving and coming back, then that's what that means. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really special. And especially to have something that's for, you know, those who identify as female, because, and it's, it's like you said, or alluded to before that diversity behind the camera is so important. And it's actually I'm really giving you my resume here, but it's actually what I wrote my master thesis was about the <laughs> female it. gaze. And so I've always been really inspired by, by women who are behind the camera. And I think it's so exciting that, you know, that they get to come to your show and, and really kind of give a little piece of themselves. That's mm-hmm. maybe it sta- can completely stands alone from who they are as a filmmaker. You know, it's really, that's really special to get to know the person. But while we're talking about bolstering the Canadian industry, my, my last question for you is a piece of Canadian content that you can recommend to our audience um, to consume. I've been really fortunate to be on some juries over the years, and uh, I've been a panelist on the like, Toronto Screenwriting Conference a few times. And what jurying and paneling has taught me is um, to educate yourself on our industry. So to go back and watch how things have changed and understand, which I've tried to do a lot of recently, is like understand why certain, why Canadian film, for instance, has a certain flavor to it. Why are we so good at comedy? So go back and kind of see what came before. Watch some Kids in the Hall from before, before you watch Shit's Creek and then go into there. Or go back and watch, you know, Timothy Finley's The Wars and see that contemplative, meditative thing, whether you like it or not. And then understand why we're so moody in our films, in our English Canadian films, I should say. And why the ecosystem in Quebec is so strong and thriving and why their identity is so specific. Um, a Café Floor, looking at all of these different things. And uh, now the Indigenous community is really beautifully coming out with their own voice. So starting to understand all those different stories that we have that make up the landscape of what it is to be a Canadian filmmaker. This year, I would highly recommend Wildhood, um, which is a beautiful film um, by a two-spirited Indigenous filmmaker about a two-spirited teenager and um, two teenagers and the one of their the younger brother of one and this journey that they go on to try to discover identity and self and everything it's a coming of age story but it's just beautifully shot beautifully directed beautifully everything night raiders also would be and scarborough there's a lot of new ones this year that i thought were really wonderful um and then some remarkable in quebec this year there was some really remarkable films um that i'm going to say incorrectly and so in your show notes maybe you can put where they actually are but les, les bruits du moteur like the motors um was really unique and interesting and kind of like a, a yoga lanthimos mixed with wes anderson mixed with it was so strange and delightful anyway lots of fantastic films coming out these days from canadian filmmakers that are worth worth a look so you're interested in being really engaged in our industry then educate yourself and and it's it's enjoyable it's even enjoyable when you don't like them 
because you get to be like, oh, this is what I dislike about X, Y, and Z. And oh, if I, and then it inspires you to go, if I were going to make a story, I want it to be more character driven or more specific or more, you know, or more tonal and more moody. Or I love uh, Mark O'Brien did a beautiful film this year called The Righteous, which is like just full force. He goes forward with his stylizing black and white and theatrical and moody. And it's, it's wonderful film. Yeah. Lots, lots to watch. Yeah. Those were such good recommendations because they were pure, pure Canadian. So that I love that. Thank you so much for all your thoughtful answers and your time. This was such a great interview. You're so charismatic and wonderful. Um, So before, before I let you go, where can people find you? Where can they keep up with uh, what's next for you? Oh my goodness, I am so bad at social media, but you can see my dog at Frederick Von Spottington on Instagram. <laughs> he's the uh, most you, important follow. <laughs> he's the most important follow. He only has 240 followers and he'd really like more. Um, no, he doesn't care. Uh, but really, that's the only one I ever update is my dog. Otherwise, at Lara Jean C, I think it is on Instagram and Twitter, which I never use. So basically, follow for the podcast to see if and when I mean when we do new ones when Jen and I find the time (laughs) to do some new episodes yeah I I wish I had a better way to follow me they can follow you on your IMDB page and then they'll be able to see what you're up to how about that yeah there you go (laughs) thank you so much for listening and we will see you next Wednesday with some very exciting guests, so be sure to tune in.